you were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville-Glencarbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Good morning, church. My name is Dominic, and I'm going to be reading this morning's scripture. We'll be starting in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he's delighted with them, or else, where is the God of justice? See, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, see, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. I will come to you in judgment, and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. The word of our Lord. We're going to end up going all the way through verse 6, but I'm glad that you saved that, actually. That's providence. And you probably noticed that I and the majority of the college students have joined in a blackout this morning. I'm not on the text thread, but look at what God can do. Just look at what the Lord can do. I had no notification of this. I am really, really excited to open the word with you again this morning and really excited to be continuing through the book of Malachi. And I really believe that in this particular passage of Malachi, we're going to kind of catch the redemptive heartbeat of the book. And it's tough to say the redemptive heartbeat of the book because there's really not a lot of redemption in the book of Malachi. There's not a whole lot of gospel in the book of Malachi. There's not a lot of mercy. There's not a lot of God coming along and being like, but it's gonna be okay. It's really a whole lot of, you guys are in deep, deep trouble. It is the Christmas story with the little brother hiding under the sink and saying, daddy's gonna kill Ralphie. I mean, that's basically Malachi. He's like, daddy is gonna kill Ralphie. God is going to destroy everybody and everything. And all the while the people of God are saying, it's not fair and it's not right. And you're not being fair and you're not treating us right. And right here at the beginning of this passage, we get the like, kind of the heartbeat of this thing where Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. God is tired of hearing about it. When God called David to become the king, he sent his servant Samuel to go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse. Samuel's just sure he knows who it's gonna be. He goes through all the sons and nobody is the right one. And then finally, Dad says, there's one more kid, he's out in the field. He's really the youngest and ruddy and handsome and just too young and kind of a nobody. They bring him in and there's this powerful statement that's made. God says through Samuel, man is looking at the outward appearance, but God is looking at our hearts. 
That's the heartbeat of this book. The heartbeat of this book is that you cannot fool God. There's this old adage that you can, feel, uh, you can fool most of the people some of the time and some of the people all the time or something like that. We have all had people in our lives that we thought were one thing. And then through their own actions, they demonstrated themselves to be another thing. And in fact, many of them, while demonstrating that they were another thing, tried to continue claiming that they were that original thing without modifying their behavior. That's the central issue that the people of God have right now. And this is the central claim that God is trying to make to them. Basically, your lips are writing checks that your actions cannot cash. You are professing to be one thing, but your actions are proving that you are in fact some other thing. Because the people of God are going like, look, we're still making offerings. We're still making sacrifices. We're lighting the fires in the temple. We're like falling over, weeping, giving this big visual demonstration of just how sincere we are in our faith. And God's response is, I'm kind of getting tired of hearing about it. It's difficult to be a person who stands on a platform and preaches primarily because people gained this belief about you that you're special and holy because you stand on a platform and preach. You open the Bible and you preach and therefore there's something uniquely holy about your character that others do not possess. And so you can preach an impassioned sermon and have people come up and be like, you're just such a man of God. And can I tell you that being able to preach with passion has absolutely nothing to do with being a man or a woman of God. It has to do with being an effective communicator and there are plenty of effective communicators who've stood on a stage and been absolute and total hypocrites, myself included. We like to judge things based on the outward appearance. We like to evaluate ourselves based on the outward appearance. We like to look at others and be able to say, I'm comforted by the way that they at least pretend to be a Christian. The simple truth is that all of us, if not all of us, nearly all of us are far more comfortable with hypocrisy that looks right than with the long, slow, painful work of sanctification. We'd much rather prefer that everyone around us just pretend to be a Christian rather than honestly be whoever they are, wherever they are in the long journey of faith. And many of us long for the days when people had the common decency to at least pretend like they were part of the family of God. And God says, I'm really kind of worn out with it. I'm looking at something much deeper, which for all of us will either be, as the gospel is, will either be a word of tremendous comfort or a word that strikes a tremendous fear. And there's really not a middle ground. And Malachi says, yet you ask, how have we wearied him? And he provides the answer. Good morning, Phoebe. I like your ring, it's pretty. 
When you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he's delighted with them, or else, where is the God of justice? He's saying, there's two things that you're just wearing me out with. Like, I'm just so, I'm so tired of hearing about this. Either you're not paying attention to what's happening in our lives and in our existence. You're not paying attention to the everyday experience of your people or you're playing favorites with people who aren't good like us and aren't yours like us and aren't kind and like, you know, all like they're not on the inside and yet somehow they're getting your favor. This is what God's like, I'm really worn out with hearing about this. I'm worn out with you pretending as if you're my people and you have earned my favor and you're living inside of the covenant and I'm worn out with you complaining that I'm not just and that I favor people who are evil, who are wicked. We, we like to ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And the best answer I've ever heard for that is that that only happened one time and he volunteered for it. It's when Jesus went to the cross but the other answer is, is because uh, good people are still just people and bad things happen to everybody. Bad things happen, to, good people aren't exempted from hard times. Here's the story for the people of Israel and I think it's the story for us. I, I think, and I'm reading into the text a bit here, but I think the people of Israel were like, we've been in Babylonian exile for quite some time now. Like 70 years, we were exiled from our homeland. You promised us when we got back, everything would be okay. In fact, better than okay, be great. And here we are back and everything isn't great. And God's like, yeah, well, there's some problems with your behavior. There's some stuff going on that you need to reconcile. And, and I think the people of Israel are not any different than you and I. And that is, I know my own backstory and that backstory should sort of make it where you don't judge me quite the same way. Sort of like if my wife is pregnant and we're speeding to the hospital and a policeman pulls us over, no policeman should give you a ticket in that instance, right? We know our backstory. We know what's happening in our lives. We know what's happening in our community. And therefore, really what we deserve is mercy and everybody else deserves justice. I want God to give me mercy because of my story, because of the circumstances of my life. In fact, not just that I want him to give me mercy, that's not quite exactly right. He kind of owes me mercy. And in the same way, I feel like it would be unjust of a policeman to give me a ticket if there's a, a valid emergency happening in my car. I sort of feel like it's unjust for God to judge my sin because of the, uh, the backstory of my own life. But when someone cuts me off, I don't care about their backstory. Their backstory is irrelevant because they're wicked and evil and wrong and deserve all the just punishment that both I and God as a tag team can meet out upon them. Swift and furious justice must be served to them. Vengeance even must be served to them. And I'm not saying that I want to be the one who cooks it, but I would love oftentimes to be the waiter who delivers it. You know what I'm saying? Like God, serve it up hot, serve it up hot and fresh or cold, whatever you want. Just put it on a plate. Let me be the one who gives it to them, right? I want to be the one who delivers that punishment to them. That is God's people in Malachi, 
Look at our backstory. Look at what's happening and treat us accordingly. But everybody else, you're still being nice to them and that's not fair and that's not right. We believe the situation explains the action and therefore God owes us his mercy. We don't want or need the backstory of somebody else. One of the clearest indicators that I have lost the thread of the gospel story is when I believe I deserve mercy and they deserve punishment. That is the, that's the easiest indicator in your life that you've lost the thread of the gospel, that it has slipped through your fingers, that you're saying, it's not right and it's not fair and God should be merciful to me and part of the mercy that he owes me is the punishment of those who have offended me, the punishment of those who are evil in my eyes, the punishment of those who are obviously not as people like I am. I've lost the whole thread. I've lost the whole place in the story when I believe I deserve mercy and they deserve punishment. They're claiming, they're stomping their foot, putting their hands on their hips, sticking up their chin and saying, God, why don't you show up and do something? I had this uh, habit uh, where I play golf. And if, if you play golf with people and they don't find out that you're a pastor, they're a lot more liberal with let's say speaking in tongues, particularly French. And oftentimes they will invoke the opposite of God's blessing upon a particular golf shot that they have hit. In fact, with more colorful language, they will say, God, punish the ball with divine retribution. Send it to eternal misery. And they use one particular colorful word, which I will not use in a sermon, but I think everybody knows what I'm talking about and it isn't, darn it, okay? And one of my favorite things to do is when people say that is to say, you better be careful because he might. And if you ask him to do something, he just might do it. I remember walking at Canacuck camps once when I was a counselor there and I had night duty, the, like, in the nighttime, a couple of the counselors stay awake and just sort of wander around the camp and make sure the bad guys aren't getting in. And I was walking down by uh, Lake Tanicoma, which is really more of a river and I don't like it. But I was walking down by Lake Tanicoma and I was like, God, would you let me see the angels that are protecting this place and these children? Then I was like, no, no, I don't wanna do that. Nobody has ever been happy that they saw angels. Everybody's freaked out and afraid. I'm just gonna take your word for it, all right? I don't wanna see that. Be careful what you ask for, is what I'm saying. Why haven't you shown up? Why haven't you done something? Why haven't you punished those who deserve punishment? Why haven't you come? Where is the Lord's coming? When is the day of the Lord going to get here? That's kind of what they're saying and God has a response. He says in chapter three, verse one, see, I'm going to send my messenger. He's talking about John the Baptist here, by the way. I'm gonna send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. The Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. Uh, you gotta be careful, be, pay attention to how God's addressing you, you know, 
Like if you ask your parents for something and they're like, listen, I'm gonna tell you no. As the father who could take away your phone, your car, your freedom and your life, be careful how you ask for that, right? Like just pay attention, the Lord of armies. And then he says this really incredible thing. He says, who can endure the day of his coming and who will be able to stand when he appears? Psalm uh, chapter 130, 130 verse three. It says, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Who would be able to stand if you marked our iniquities? Could anybody exist in your presence if you were to count our iniquities? Who can endure and who will be able to stand? I'm sending my messenger, John the Baptist, the day of the Lord's coming is going to happen. He is coming, but who can endure it? Who will be able to stand when he appears? Well, the first coming of Jesus was spectacular. It was amazing. It's, it's like exemplified in a microcosm by his journey towards Jerusalem, riding in on a donkey. And I'm sure you've heard plenty of Passover sermons, but a donkey was a symbol of peace. If royalty was riding on a donkey, it meant I'm bringing peace. If royalty was riding on a horse, it meant I'm bringing war to you. I'm, I'm coming with peace or I'm coming with war. And Jesus enters Jerusalem to make peace for all mankind. And since that day, we've been in the last days. Since Jesus resurrected, it's the last days. The disciples who lived then believed with sincerity that Jesus could come back at any moment. And I hope you live with that same sincere and urgent belief. He could come back at any moment. And we get in the book of Revelation a little bit of a glimpse of what it will be like when Jesus does return. If you went to Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11, here's what you see. John, the revelator, he says... Then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Uh-oh. Its rider is called Faithful and True and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has a name that no one knows. He's riding on a white horse. All the armies of heaven, the Lord of armies has commanded the armies of heaven. They've suited up for war. He dips his robe in blood. He comes to make war with the nations. A sword is coming out of his mouth. He treads in the winepress of God's fury, making wine that he will pour out on the whole world. Who can endure the day of his coming? And in chapter 20 in verse 11, it says, then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. Everybody's trying to get away, but there's nowhere to go. I also saw the dead, 
the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up their dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Who will be able to stand when he appears? Who can endure the day of his coming? The messenger of the covenant is coming. That's John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist's consistent message? Well, if you had to boil it down to one word, does anybody know what word would you, would you use? Repent, that's right, repent, repent. Because one is coming who is greater than I, one whose sandals I am not fit to loose. Listen, if Paul and I were back running sound, I could not even undo his chacos for him. If I'm back there with Sarah Davis, I could not untie her shoes. They are vastly greater than I in that area. John the Baptist has this one central message, repent, 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 repent. And who's he preaching to? Israel. He's preaching to God's people. Repent, 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 repent. And by the way, his most honest words, his most pointed words, his most harsh the harshest language he could find. It's the same for Jesus, by the way, was reserved for those who, like the Jews in Malachi's day, believed that they deserved judgment, but we deserve mercy. And we deserve the covenant love of God and we deserve his favor. We've earned it. Look at our story and we have earned it. And what is John's message to them about the covenant? Repent, 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 repent. Just keep repenting. Who can endure and who can stand? Because he says, he will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. I don't know anything about refining precious metals from an experiential standpoint, never done it. But I can tell you what the process is. You put it in there as it is and then you heat it up and heat it up and heat it up and heat it up and heat it up until finally there's enough heat that everything that isn't pure will bubble to the top and then the refiner scrapes it off. That's what it looks like when God is purifying his people. That's part of the process that he takes us through. That's part of what his coming looks like. Not only that, he says, he'll be like a launderer's soap. Whew, that doesn't sound fun. Like a launderer's bleach, in fact. Just, I don't know what to say other than if you haven't seen somebody use a washboard, then you cannot appropriately appreciate what this looks like. 
my grand would say something like this. You, you have to find the, the thing that is stained. You put the bleach and the soap on it and then you just scrub the devil out of it. Has anybody heard that? You scrub the devil out of it. And that is what God does to us. God's people are like, it's not fair and it's hard and I don't like it. And God is like, I'm trying to refine you. I'm trying to purify you. And not only am I trying to do it, but Paul would tell the church in Philippi, he's faithful. He has a covenant with us and you can count on it that what he started, he's going to finish. He is going to finish his work inside of us. He's going to finish. In other words, the Lord's coming. For some, the Lord's coming will be an absolutely brutal and terrifying experience. Painful, and humiliating, and for some, it will send them into eternal torment. Endless punishment, pain, and separation from God. For all eternity, pleading for escape, and there will be none that will be offered. God is saying, I am going to come. When I come, I'm gonna be like a refiner. I'm gonna be like a launderer. Who could stand? I'll come to you in judgment and I'll be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. They don't fear me. We like to think about our own backstory. And when we think about it wrongly, we come to the conclusion, excuse me, we come to the conclusion that God owes us mercy. It's interesting though, when Paul thought about his backstory and talked about what he had done and what he had been through and what God would, had done for him in, in Romans chapter seven, he goes on this kind of a pretty long dialogue or diatribe, I guess, because it's written and it's just him, but he goes on this kind of long exploration about the difficulty of life and how it's made exponentially more difficult because of his own sin and how he finds himself doing stuff that he doesn't wanna do when in his heart, he's like, I really wanna please God. But then in the experience of everyday life, he's like, it's sin after sin after sin. And I find myself doing all this stuff that I don't wanna do. And in, in Romans chapter seven, verse 24, he says, what a wretched man I am. This is Paul's conclusion about his backstory. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? This is Paul's experience, is not, I've looked back at the backstory of my life. Now listen, Paul, shipwrecked, beaten, abused, accused, three times he got the 40 lashes minus one. Endlessly having to defend himself. He could have been rich and famous and powerful. And he gave all that up to be a servant of the Lord Jesus. And never in this lifetime, not 
at all in this lifetime was Paul treated as he deserved to be treated. He wasn't venerated by the world's population for his dedication and devotion to the Lord. If anybody had the right to be like, God, look at everything I'm doing for you and look at how hard my life is. Why don't you do this favor for me? Why don't you smite my enemies? Why don't you give me the benefit of the doubt? Could you at least pour out a little bit of blessing on me? The one time that Paul does call out for God's mercy, he's like, I've got this thorn in the flesh and I've asked God to take it away. And his response to me is, my grace is sufficient for you. And that's that was sufficient for Paul. His response and conclusion here is what a wretched man I am. I'm not living the way that I want to live. I'm not living the way that I'm supposed to live. I need some help and thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's where it's coming from. That's where salvation is coming from. And what are we really talking about here? We're talking about pride. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about pride and we're talking about humility. Would you like a hug? You want a hug? I love you. Pride says you owe me something. Pride says I deserved better than you gave me. Pride says I'm good and you're bad. Pride says I deserve the good things that have happened in my life. And by the way, you deserve anything bad that's happened in yours. Because pride says it's all about me. That I'm the main character, that I'm the center of the story. Pride inverts the gospel. It makes us merciful to ourselves and it makes us harsh with others. But humility allows us to see ourselves and others rightly. It allows us to enjoy the mercy of God. Pride says I shouldn't need God's mercy. I shouldn't need Jesus to die for me. I shouldn't need the help of a friend. I shouldn't ever feel sad. I shouldn't ever feel discouraged. Pride says, I'm not supposed to be weak. Humility says, what a wretched man that I am. Who can help me? Who can deliver me? Is there anybody who can understand? The end game for God with humanity has always been exceedingly, abundantly, crystal clear. In verse five, in Malachi chapter three, excuse me, in verse four, Malachi chapter three, he says, uh, after he says, the silver and gold refining takes place, at the end of three, he says, then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. The end game for God has always been clear. He wants unbroken and unending fellowship and friendship with us, his people. That's what he wants. He wants pure worship from grateful hearts. He wants, to, uh, he wants us to enjoy the unity of the spirit through the bond of shared peace. That's what he wants from us. And the cross of Calvary stands as the final proof that there is nothing he won't do to get it. There is no consequence too severe. There is no sacrifice that is too great. With God, there has never been an instance of disordered priorities, unforced errors, or innocent mistakes. He wants us to live in the fog. 
He wants us to live in the favor of God. He wants us to live in his presence. He wants us to have unbroken, unending, joy-filled, peace-filled, purpose-filled fellowship with him and with one another. And he's not gonna sit idly by and allow us to experience anything less than he purchased for us with the blood of his own son. In other words, he's not going to let us continue to just weep on the altar. He's not going to let us continue to just profess or appear to have a deep devotion to God. He's not going to let us off the hook because of our particular backstory. In front of God's presence in the great white throne, great and small, rich and poor, black and white, all the colors of the rainbow, all the people of the rainbow, those who have had it easy and those who have had it hard, those who went through life only knowing comfort and abundance and those who went through life being abused and abused and abused. All of us stand accountable before God. In Romans, Paul called us to the heart and the attitude that God wants us to possess. Just a little bit after he goes through Romans seven, not just the attitude that he wants for us, but the one that the spirit empowers and enables us to possess. And uh, it's a little bit wordy in most of our translations of the Bible. So I went to the message translation. And for those of you who don't know, there's a difference in translations of the Bible. Some of them are looking for a word for word translation. Probably the closest one that's word for word is a new American standard version of the Bible. And if you translate anything word for word from one language to another, it can get kind of confusing because language is meant to be expressive and to capture an idea and it's limiting because only certain words are offered to capture a full idea. The message is really more poetic and it goes not word for word and not phrase for phrase, but it goes kind of thought for thought. And instead of trying to represent the specificity of the exact words that are used, it represents a translator's idea of the sense of what's being said. In other words, it's great for devotions, not necessarily great for deep study. Okay, so I'm reading out of something that's great for devotional thought, the message translation. And I'm gonna read just a little bit of Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 18. It says this, I don't think there's any comparison. This would be Paul speaking. I don't think that there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released to the same moment, at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. If you read this in a regular translation, there's a lot of talk about birth pains and the expectancy that you have when you're pregnant that you don't know what the baby's going to be like. You don't know what being a parent is going to be like. You don't know what it's gonna be like to add to the family. But as the baby grows, the expectation and the excitement builds. And you just, you just get to the place where you can't hardly wait for it. That's what Paul's trying to convey. Then a few verses down, he says, God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him 
along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. The original and intended shape of humanity is found in Jesus. And then he says a few verses later, so what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't, put, if God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else that he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? Is there any length that God wouldn't gladly and freely go to, to allow you to experience the joy of his presence, the joy of fellowship with him? And you and I, trapped in these bodies of death, struggling in a world filled with brokenness and sin, struggling in a world that isn't right with desires that aren't right. And what is God saying to me and to you? He's saying to me, Raiden, there is no length that I won't go to to see you sanctified. You know why? It's the best experience of human life. It's what you were designed for. It's what the experience of heaven will be for you. And so that thing that you hold on to, that sin that you hold on to, that thing that you're like, I can't do it. By the way, when it comes to the people of God and the commands of God, it is never for us a can't because you are filled with the spirit of God. It's a won't. And I want you to know what God is saying to the people here in Malachi. There's nothing I won't do to see you be who you were made to be. And what God is saying to me and to you this morning is, there is absolutely nothing I won't do to see you made into who you are supposed to be. We are being conformed into the image of his son. And the more that you resist, the more that he turns up the heat, the more that you want to embed the stain of sin into your life, the more he's gonna pick up the bleach and scrub and you will not be able to get away from him. You know why? Because it says in Revelation what's true. Everybody's there and everybody's like, we gotta get out of here. And God's like, guess what? There is nowhere that you can hide from me. And there is nowhere that you can get away from me. Because of the unending promise of Jesus, I will be with you always. And he has this really beautiful statement at the end of this little passage right here in verse six. He says, because I, the Lord, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. That's why I'm still sucking wind. It's not because I'm especially holy. It's not because I've lived an immaculate, sinless life since the day that I was saved. The only reason that God's people get to continue existing is because God doesn't change. And what's the point of him saying that? The point of him saying that is, I made a covenant with you. I'm the one who wrote the covenant. I'm the one who made the covenant. I'm the one who sustains the covenant. I'm the one who keeps the covenant. You are the recipient 
of the blessings of that covenant. And the only reason you get to keep receiving the blessings is because I do not change. Now that's wonderful news for those of us who are in Christ. But those of you who are here this morning and have spent either a lifetime or a moment pretending as if Jesus has saved you from your sin and you have been filled with the spirit of God, that should be terrifying news because he doesn't change. And your particular back story will not get you off the hook. The fact that you were a basically good person, the fact that you were a religious person, the fact that you were married to a Christian, that you gave money, that you served, that you spent time, that you went to church faithfully, that your name was on the roll of a church, none of that is part of the covenant. The covenant, Jesus said, is a covenant, it's new, and it's made in my blood. It's made in my blood. It's all tied in all the way through history. What was it that preserved God's people in the Exodus from Pharaoh? The blood was spread across their doorposts and anywhere where the blood was found, death was not delivered there. Life was preserved there. It's still the same story for us. You cannot make it into heaven based on your backstory. You cannot get there because life has been hard or unfair or unjust. I don't mean to belittle the pain of your experience. The truth is that only forgiveness that comes at the highest price can perfectly articulate the fullness of the wrong that has been done. Otherwise, we, present, we pretend and present as if it really wasn't that big of a deal and there's really not something that could be done or needs to be done to make it right. I'm simply saying your backstory will not get you into the covenant. What is it that gets us into the covenant? In Acts chapter four and verse 12, when a couple of apostles were standing before the Sanhedrin, they said, there is salvation found in no other name than Jesus. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Jesus, when talking his, to his disciples about where he was going and how they were gonna get there, and they're like, we don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What does it mean? It means that Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. Jesus took the full punishment for every sin that humanity will ever commit. There's no punishment left to give out by a just God. He has punished it all in Jesus. And what's required of us is to say, I am fully dependent upon that price that was made. Otherwise, you are left to try to pay your own way in and you don't have the currency of eternity in your pockets. You've got nothing to provide to that covenant. You've got nothing that you can bring to that covenant. And if you think that this sounds harsh, I will tell you the truth. It is, it is harsh. It's harsh because it's exclusive. It's not exclusive like a country club where you have to pay dues and you have to have a certain amount of time and discretionary money to be able to get into it or you have to have the right resume it's exclusive because there's no other way. There's simply no other way to heaven. And those of us who are followers of Jesus, those of us who've given our lives to Jesus, sometimes it's easy to get off track and believe that we began 
with the help of Jesus and the strength of Jesus, but we'll finish underneath our own power. That path always leads to self-righteous belief that we deserve something. That now we deserve something, we've earned it. The path of following Jesus is a path of endless dependence and perpetual weakening of self. John said, he must increase and I must decrease. Those of you who have not surrendered your lives to Jesus, you are not going to heaven. You will not spend eternity in heaven. You'll never know the peace and the security that salvation brings with it. You'll be cast out of his presence for all time. It's severe, but it's true. And the pathway into heaven couldn't be more simple and more clear. It's faith in what Jesus has done for us. It's surrendering ourselves to him. And I'm gonna invite you to do that now, this morning. I'm gonna ask you, if you would, to just take a moment and to reflect upon where you are at with the Lord. His coming is sure and it's soon. Peter talks about it and he says, everybody's like, where's his coming? Everybody's been saying since the days of old that he's going to come and still he hasn't come. Where's his coming? And Peter says, but the Lord, he's not slow like some consider slowness. He's patient and his desire is that none would perish and all would come to repentance. But you make no mistake, the trumpet could blast right now, the sky could roll back and Jesus could show up with a sword in his mouth, a robe dipped in blood and his thigh tatted up with King of Kings and Lord of Lords, carrying a name that nobody knows except for him ready to bring judgment. It's a great relief to me to know that God has not appointed his people for wrath. In other words, that judgment isn't coming for me. The knowledge that people in my life don't yet know him causes me to say, don't come yet. The only times we see the people of God praying for God's return is when they're like, the world is so broken and I'm so sinful. Could you just come Jesus? And like, I'm tired of living in the brokenness and I'm tired of my own sin. Could you please come? But when the people of God consider the lost, we're supposed to say, could you just wait, Lord? We can endure. What we're going through now is nothing like what it's going to be someday. When you plant a church, you begin with this great gospel urgency and then somewhere along the way, you lose it. I'm afraid that we've lost gospel urgency in our church because it's a nice place to be and there are plenty of really nice people around who like me just fine. And that's really what I want. I'm praying that God brings gospel urgency back to us. And I'm praying this morning, those of you who still think about it, I'm, I'm praying this morning that someone would surrender their lives to Jesus somebody would say, I've been faking it. And if he came back right now, the thought of him coming back right now fills me with fear. If that's you, I want you to know you don't have to be afraid of asking the questions. 
You don't have to be afraid of considering where you're at with the Lord. You don't have to be afraid of walking into his presence and just saying, I'm, I'm not sure. Would you show me? And he will show you. I'm gonna be available to talk to and pray with you during the first song and the response moment. And I'm available anytime to talk with you and to pray with you. Don't be afraid of walking into his presence and asking, can you show me where I'm at with you? The psalmist, who was a man after his heart, said, God, would you search me and know me? And I'm gonna invite you, before you come to the Lord's table, I'm gonna invite you to make that same request of God. God, would you search me and know me? See if there's anything wrong with me and lead me. So you take a moment where you're at, I'll be available to pray with you. And when you're ready, you can come to the table. God, we're asking you to speak clearly to your people. That's it, just do what you wanna do. In Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's Word together.